Hello and welcome to episode 125 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where Karloff is king, Bella Lugosi lives, and John Agar rules. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. We're listening to the song Morocco. It's from the band King Pelican. It appears on their album The Good, The Bad, and The Reverb. It's on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, with their permission. Look them up on Facebook. They're a pretty good band. Appreciate them letting us play their music on the show, and I appreciate you joining me here at the podcast this week. On this episode, we are going back in time, going back about a month and a half, to Monster Bash June 2014. We've got a recording from one of the presentations there. The presentation was called Talking Monsters, the Black Cat, with Gregory William Mank. Now, I talked to Gregory William Mank on the show, even interviewed him and had him on a podcast episode. Well, he gave us permission to play the recording of his presentation here on the podcast, so I hope you guys and gals dig it. Now, this presentation was done after the film was actually shown to the group. There was a full house, big crowded room full of people, all hanging on his every word, learning about the black cat. Now, it was a multimedia presentation. Every once in a while, he does refer to a slide or a picture, that sort of thing. Well, obviously, we don't have that for you here. This is an audio podcast, but I think you're still going to dig it nonetheless. Now, before we get to that, let me tell you about our website over at monsterkidradio.net. That's where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. From there, you're going to find links to our Live 365 channel, our YouTube page, our Flickr album, as well as links to our Facebook group. We've got a pretty active Facebook group. I want to thank everybody who's involved with that. If you are a Facebook user and you haven't joined the group yet, well, what's stopping you? That's where listeners of the show chatted up between episodes. We also have a Facebook page. Just look us up, facebook.com slash monsterkidradio, and we ask you to give us a like if you are a user on Facebook. Also, over on our website, you're going to find a link to our Patreon page. I'll talk about that here at the end of the show, as well as our contact information, which we're going to get to after the recording of the presentation, Talking Monsters the Black Cat with Gregory William Mank. Why don't we get to that right after this? Hi, this is Ruby. And I'm Hater. And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine. And they're all 1950s-style black and white movies. The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. <laughs> you can find us at SaintEuphoria.com. Or like us on Facebook. That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. Hope you tune in. So many things have been said and written about the Black Cat over the decades. One of my favorite one-liners about the movie actually was in The Hollywood Reporter on the day after the premiere. The Black Cat premiered in Hollywood on May 3rd, 1934 at the Hollywood Pantages Theater. Karloff was there. Lugosi was there. The leading lady, Jacqueline Wells, was there. The next day, The Hollywood Reporter ran a review and really panned the movie. So this was a horrible movie and went on and on about it. It was bad for this reason, bad for that reason, on and on. And finally, it summed it all up. It said, this is a really bad movie because Karloff and Lugosi make improper faces at each other. Here <laughs> <laughs> we say more. Improper faces. Well, let's go on. Let's take a little trip in time back here and see what happens. We uh, see Universal City around 1934. See the big mountains behind there and the uh, 
and the sound stage. It's a very picturesque spot. And specifically, we're going back to January 17th, 1934. Next picture. And it is the birthday party for Uncle Carl Lemley, Carl Lemley Sr., the founder of Universal City. He is 67 years old this day. And the chocolate cake he has weighs 67 pounds. <laughs> Every time he has a birthday, they create a cake that equals in pounds his age. So if he were still alive today by some miracle, his birthday cake would weigh 147 pounds. Now we see up here Boris Karloff looking a little sheepish at the impression which is he could get out of the party and run off to the Hollywood Cricket Club or something. We, uh, we see Margaret Sullivan over there to the uh, next to Uncle Carl and some other people. We see Ken Maynard and Andy Devine and the fellow over there on the far right with the big Mr. Sardonicus smile is Carl Lemley Jr., known as Junior Lemley. We'll refer to him as Uncle Carl for the old man and Junior as the young man as we go along. Uh, Carl Lemley Sr. being the president and king, if you will, of Universal at the time, and uh, Junior Lemley the crown prince. Well, on this very same day, January 17th, 1934, that they're having the birthday party. Variety has a story on page one. Page one news. Universal is going to make a new horror film. The Black Cat, based on the Edgar Allan Poe classic, is going to star Boris Karloff, be personally produced by Junior Lemlin. There's no mention yet of Beta Lugosi. Well, as for the Black Cat, next picture, please. One of Edgar Allan Poe's more savage stories, really, story about a drunken man who abuses a cat, gouges out the cat's eye with a pen knife, hangs the cat from a tree, and after that, the story gets dark. <laughs> uh, he uh, tries to go after the cat with an axe. His wife intervenes. He drives the axe into his wife's skull. She, of course, dies. He walls her up in the basement. Uh, to hide her body. Well, of course, what happens is there's all this howling and screaming and wailing coming out uh, from behind the wall as this goes on. And the parties come, tear down the wall, find the wife's body there with the cat on the head, giving him away. All right. And as the narrator says at the end of the story, I had walled the monster up in the tomb. Well, this, of course, is going to have nothing to do with the movie that you just saw. Next picture. Because, also in this variety story, they have named the director of the movie. And that is the man who you see circled way up there in the back row with the black hair and the mustache. And that is Edgar G. Ulmer. Right? Edgar G. Ulmer. Now, Edgar G. Omer is not a very famous director at this point at all. He's only 29 years old. His most recent film was an underground movie called Damaged Lives, about a married couple who discover that they have syphilis. All right? So, you may say, well, how come they didn't get James Whale to direct this picture? <laughs> and James Whale directed Frankenstein and, and The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. Why didn't they get uh, Carl Freund who directed The Mummy? Well, actually, there's a very good reason why Junior Lemley, still smiling there in that picture, all right, selected 
Edgar Homer for this child. And to do that, we're going to trace a little bit about the relationship between the father and the son. So, next picture, please. Junior Lemley, amazingly, was running Universal City when he was only 21 years old. And his father gave him the job, basically. Uh, and everybody thought for sure that Junior would fail. And in a perverse way, I think his father thought he would fail also. And Junior set out to try to show everybody that he really had what it took to become a major producer. And he undertook to, to produce All Quiet on the Western Front. His father said, you're crazy. You can't produce this movie. Nobody will go to see it. Nobody likes war movies. Nobody's certainly going to like a war movie told from the German point of view. All right? They're going to ruin the studio. Don't do it. Well, of course, the film came out. It was an international success, and it wins the Academy Award as the best picture of 1930. And of course, when it wins, guess who goes up to get the Oscar? Next picture. The old man. All right? And he says this is one of the greatest thrills of his life. In fact, the only thrill that was greater was when he became a grandfather. He is so thrilled, in fact, that he has another ceremony at Universal City shortly thereafter. There we are. And once again, Conrad Nagel from the Academy shows up, presents Uncle Carl the Oscar. Uncle Carl has Slim Somerville there to attend this little ceremony. All right, and notice that Junior Lemley is nowhere in sight. And by the way, yes, Uncle Carl is standing up. <laughs> well, it goes from there. Junior, again, very adventurous producer, decides that he's going to produce Dracula. Uncle Carl has a fit. Why in the world would you make a movie about this sex fiend from hell who attacks women in their boudoirs and who in the movie, as played by Beto Lugosi, is actually a sexy matinee idol type? Why would you make a movie like that? Well, of course, the film is a tremendous success. And it's kind of funny, uh, the news of Uncle Carl's apoplexy about Dracula had so crept out over Hollywood, right? so many people heard about it, that Uncle Carl actually took out a trade ad after Dracula was a hit, and he said, basically, he wrote, I knew it was good, I just didn't know it was that good. <laughs> trying, to, trying to save face a little bit. All right? Meanwhile, Junior goes on. He produces Frankenstein, right? <laughs> tale of a man who defies God, by creating a monster. And of course, it's played by the great Boris Karloff. This monster is the most sympathetic character in the film. So it's actually about a subversive movie as well. All right, film is an enormous success. Dracula took in $1.2 million in rentals. Frankenstein, $1.4 million in rentals. The films are sensations. They give Universal a corporate identity. It still has 80 years later, but Uncle Carl still throws a fit. And he says basically to Junior, listen, you know the little schlemiel? Are you in the studio? Look what you're doing to it. You're running it into the ground. You're making these morbid movies. Why don't we make movies people like? Why don't we make dog pictures? Everybody likes dog pictures. <laughs> See, I, I just proved this point. You all like dog pictures, obviously. At least if the dog's wearing a war bonnet. Right? So, um, 
At any rate, uh, sorry about that. So, actually, there is, meanwhile, a more serious problem at hand. A personal problem. A bitter problem. And that is, next picture. Junior had fallen in love with an actress named Constance Cummings. Very lovely, very talented actress. And he wanted to marry her. Uh, the Lemleys were Jewish, and Constance was a Gentile. And Uncle Carl basically said, no son of mine is going to marry a shiksa. All right, you marry her, I'll disinherit you. I'll destroy you. You're in big, big trouble. Junior backs down and doesn't marry her and says it was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life. He never really recovers and never marries. And in 1934, he actually argued that Junior Lemley already was the ruins of Junior Lemley. So what does he do at this point, early in 1934? He decides he's going to really get the old man. He is going to produce a horror film so perverse, so dark, all right, that Uncle Carl will hardly believe it. And he wants to find the right man to do it. He chooses Edgar G. Ulmer. Now, you might say again, why? There's a very good reason. Junior Lemley thinks Edgar Ulmer, who we see in that picture taken back in the mid-1920s, Junior thinks that Edgar Ulmer is crazy. Right? And, uh, to use a judgmental word, he thinks he's crazy. Right? And, and he's probably right to a certain extent. Uh, how crazy is Edgar Ulmer? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Edgar Ulmer is so crazy that if you were, use the word crazy in front of him, he gets very upset. You know, it's like, you know, why are you using that word in front of me? Don't, don't you say that word. Don't you say crazy in front of me. He's very hypersensitive about, about the whole concept of, of crazy. All right? But he is very, very creative, has a very, very dark side. And Uncle, Uncle Carl, all right, watch out. Because basically, Junior figures, let Edgar Ulmer direct this picture. Let him make Black Cat. You can direct it. You can create the story. You can design the sets. You can design the costumes. Do anything you want as long as it scares the pants off of Lemley Sr., which would be pretty horrifying in of itself. <laughs> Next picture. Two days later, trade papers announce Universal is seeking Beta Lugosi to join the Black Cat. All right, so we'll have Carl and Lugosi in the same picture. This will be the greatest horror movie ever made as conceived at this time. Well, there are drafts, meanwhile, at Universal of a script for the Black Cat. One actually even resembles the story about a man who, you know, tortures a cat and kills his wife and so on and so forth. But Edgar Ulmer decides he's going to go a completely different route. Next picture, please. He decides he's going to base the story partly on a fort called Fort Dumont in France, Brazil. Uh, which had fallen to the Kaiser during World War I. And uh, late in his life, uh, Omer gave an interview to Peter Bogdanovich, a very famous, often quoted interview, in which he talked about Fort Dumont and its influence on the black cat. And he called the fort a mountain of bodies, which indeed it is. He didn't explain why it became, though, a mountain of bodies, which he might not have actually known, so it was kind of suppressed for many years. What basically happened at Dumont was... The Germans took it over. They're sitting around at night. You know how Germans are. And they're, they're singing and having a good time and, you know, 
nobody would fight anymore. And, and they decide they want some coffee. Well, the uh, provisions in Fort Delano are very nice. It's a pretty dank and you know, kind of funky place. And they can't get the coffee warm. So a couple of the German soldiers get impatient because they really would like some nice hot coffee. And they say, okay, I don't want to warm up the coffee. Go get those flamethrowers we have. <laughs> they get a couple of flamethrowers and the men start spraying the flames at the coffee on the stove. Well, they are oblivious to the fact that in the next room, loaded from the floor to the ceiling, are bombs and shells. Everything explodes. This enormous fireball goes soaring throughout Fort Dumont, and 697 German soldiers are burned alive. Now, of course, the German authorities don't want to really give the details of what happened because it's it's, it's rather embarrassing. They also are in a situation that what are they going to do with all the bodies? You know, almost 700 bodies. Well, interestingly enough, Dumont had walls in it. In, in the, uh, the poster, the Black Cat had talked about the fact of the narrator walling his wife up within the tomb. Well, basically, that's what the Germans did at Dumont. They walled up, they just took the bodies and dumped them down behind the walls of the fort and then built up another wall and created basically a German war shrine. All right. And uh, all those poor souls are interred behind those walls. So that was the story of Fort Dumont. He decided to, to tap into that. Now there's another influence. This fine looking man we see up there now is Alistair Crowley. Alistair <laughs> Crowley was at the time the world's most famous Satanist. Right? He was known as the Beast of the Apocalypse. He was known as the wickedest man in the world but his friends just called him 666. <laughs> Alistair Crowley was, was he genuine, was he a charlatan? It's hard to say. It's, it's very, it's, it's kind of funny. I always thought, for example, his name was Alistair Crowley, but some years ago I was having lunch in California with somebody who was actually a bona fide member of the Church of Satan, and in mid-conversation I said something about Alistair Crowley, and he glared at me across the table and he said, it's Alistair Crowley. His name rhymes with holy. And I said, oh. <laughs> Thank you. Have a blessed day. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, Alistair Crowley was uh, 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 this, this uh, high priest Satanist. And uh, next picture, he sets up an abbey. It's supposed to be Abbey of Thelema in Sicily. You can see they still have the ruins there uh, of the Abbey of Thelema, and people make pilgrimages up there to see it. You can see it looks out over the sea. Beautiful spot. And he used to have black masses there. Right? Very famous for the black masses. He celebrated the Abbey of Thelema, where his star attraction was his scarlet woman, Leah Percy. Now there you see Leah with a picture of herself that Crowley painted of her. All right, and she was the Scarlet Woman. And she would appear, like I say, she was the star attraction of these black masses, and, and she would pretty much do what you would expect, you know, a Scarlet Woman to do at a black mass. You know, she you know, she stripped naked and poured blood on herself and you know, did nasty things with goat, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, uh, you know, buy me a coat later and I'll you know, tell you more about Leah Mercy. But um, <laughs> 
But basically, uh, she was a star attraction. Now, um, I, I, wanted, I, I wanted you to know this, that uh, Leah Hersig, when uh, she and, uh, she and uh, Crowley eventually were exiled from, from uh, Sicily by no less than Benito Mussolini, right? which is quite a distinction. And um, she went back to New York, she became a school teacher, and she converted to Roman Catholicism. And I thought you'd like to know that because I know how much you would have loved to have heard her confession. <laughs> I can hear you in the confessional now saying, what was that about a goat? <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. So at any rate, they come up with this script for the black cat. Karloff gets the Alistair Crowley-type role, all right, of Chelmo Prilzy, and Lugosi becomes sort of the avenging angel, tormented hero, Dr. Vitus Verdegast. Uh, interesting that Karloff enjoyed this film, uh, was attracted to this film primarily because of the fact that he really liked the costumes. All right? He really enjoyed you know, wearing his black robes and makeup, and he thought, he thought that was really cool. And Lugosi enjoyed the film because of the fact that he got to sort of uh, be himself and look himself and um, it was showcased as being very handsome. Uh, in fact, of course, there's the, the wonderful story that his widow told, Hope Lugosi told, about in the last year of Lugosi's life, he went to see with her a revival of The Black Cat in Hollywood, and when he walked on screen, Lugosi sitting in the audience, looked at himself and shouted so everybody in the theater would hear him and turn around and look at him and said, my, what a handsome bastard I used to be. <laughs> And he was. Well, there he is with, uh, with Edgar Ulmer, all right? And uh, interesting statistics about this movie. It all came together. They were going to produce it for ni about $90,000 was the budget, which is very, very low. A few months later, Claudette Colbert comes to Universal to do Imitation of Life. Her salary alone is $90,000. So they're making this whole movie for $90,000, all right? Um, Carlos fee for the movie is $7,500. Lugosi's fee for the movie is $3,000. You get both those horror superstars for $10,500. Incredible. I'm sure there'll be people here at Monster Bash this weekend whose bar bill would be more than $10,500. All right? But at any rate, there they are, and they're all ready to roll with the movie. Now, next picture, before we, do, before we get into that, you might wonder, where were Karloff and Lugosi at? Hollywood, or were they, you know, over their personal situations. We're looking at a picture of Carlos House. I must confess, one of my favorite things to do during research trips to Los Angeles is to take pictures of celebrities' old homes. It's amazing I haven't been arrested or shot or something at this point for going up and taking pictures. But this was Carlos' um, home at Toluca Lake. Uh, right behind that house is the lake and these beautiful hills. It's a, it's a very, very lovely home. Um, and he loved that house. He loved feeding the swans on the lake behind the house. Uh, next picture. You see a, a posed picture there of Karloff and his wife Dorothy. And you can tell him the swans. And you can tell this is the posed picture because Karloff's wearing a suit, all right, here. And uh, his wife Dorothy's, of course, wearing her heels while they're out there, you know, feeding the swans. Usually, when Karloff went out and played with the animals, he dressed far more casually. Next picture. There you get an idea. <laughs> Yeah. In his top hat and uh, his elastic swim trunks 
and he would go out and commune with nature and truly scare the hell out of everybody. Right? Well, it was funny. Uh, at Toluca Lake, a little story about that, he had a, there was a swan there that everybody hated. You know, swans are beautiful animals, but, you know, if you get too close to them or bother them, they hiss and they attack and they carry on. They can be, they can be a lot of trouble. And they had a swan there who, that's not the original swan, but you get the idea. It was a big swan like that, big wingspan, big swan. And um, Karloff named the swan Edgar, all right? I think before that, the swan didn't have a name. I mean, the neighbors just caught it that damn lousy swan, you know, that bothered them all. But um, he named the swan Edgar, and of course Karloff had this sort of St. Francis of Assisi, you know, charm over animals, and he was able to get Edgar to behave, all right? Edgar, he kind of, you know, were steps to report, and he sort of created peace around Toluca Lake and, and, and kind of tamed Edgar down. Well, as it turned out, it was funny, when I was in the neighborhood years ago and walking around it, somebody was talking to me about the history of the place, and he said, well, you know, one of Carlos' neighbors, he said, I can't think of his name, but he was that comedian that used to say, all children should be fried. And next picture, he of course meant W.C. Fields, who lived a couple houses away from Karloff. And um, funny story is that, of course, W.C. Fields did not have great rapport with animals, or almost anybody or anything else. And one day Fields is out in his canoe on Toluca Lake, and he's paddling along, he's probably plastered, you know, and he's singing away, and and all of a sudden Edgar, the swan, swims up to Fields' canoe and knocks him right out of the canoe. Starts beating the hell out of him with his wings and trying to drown him, all right? And you can imagine Fields out there in Toluca Lake, you know, screaming, you know, cease, Edgar, cease, cease, Edgar, cease. And of course, the whole community hears all this ruckus out there in the lake. They come running out to sea. Of course, guess who's there along with them? Next picture, him. Horace comes along. And he's able to subdue uh, uh, Edgar, and uh, Field survives, and they both move on. As far as Lugosi, here is his home at the time. Pretty magnificent-looking place, isn't it? That's up on Westshire Drive in the Hollywood Hills, very close to the Hollywood sign. And um, that great big window you see there overlooked Hollywood. I mean, that was right up in the Hollywood Hills, looked at there, right down on the film colony. Beautiful place, and his name was Castle La Paloma. All right, next picture, please. And we see Bela at the back gate with his dog standing there, and the place looks very, very much today like it did back then. Next picture, you see me shamelessly trespassing <laughs> at the gate. Uh, you know, something is actually the same gate, or one very much like it. And the stone, the brick hasn't changed. All right, and uh, truthfully, the day I was up there, it was deserted. Nobody was there. But in the past couple of years, the house has been sold a couple of times, and it's been very beautifully uh, restored, and it's now like a $2.5 million piece of real estate. And that was Bela's uh, retreat, Castle La Paloma. Next picture, please. He lived there with Lillian, all right? And I love that picture of the two of them in those matching white suits. And uh, uh, there she was married to this... Very young girl, man, this world-famous movie star and living up there on a cliff. It must have been very, very exciting. So, next picture, please. Back to the movie. 
We see our romantic heroes, David Manners and Jacqueline Wells. David Manners was the first horror celebrity that my wife Barbara and I interviewed in person. And uh, he was very charming and, 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 and very, very likable. And uh, But he did not like horror movies. Um, I can remember very vividly bringing up Dracula and the mummy and the death kiss. And he winced and said, oh, I hated doing those things. I never dreamed they would become classics. But he did like the black cat. And he liked the black cat for a couple of reasons. First of all, he said, yeah, I, had a, he said I had a very good director in that one. Uh, Edgar Ulmer was very helpful, very friendly. I enjoyed making the picture. And also, he really, as he put it, enjoyed the spectacle of seeing Lugosi and Karloff together in the same movie. There's two in the same picture. <laughs> Jacqueline Wells, who we see there, looks like, from that picture, looks like she got the role on the strength of her eyebrows, doesn't it? Yeah. Those, those wonderful eyebrows. Um, I was very lucky to talk to her late uh, in her life, and she talked all about the black cat. And she was very funny. She said that when she ended up in this picture and, and actually saw the script and, and, and found out what it was all about, she said, oh, no, what have I got myself into? You know, this isn't a B movie. This is a C movie or a D movie. And uh, you know, look what happened. You know, I, you know, they tied me to a cross, and I, oh, just was awful. And she said, you know, she was very upset, and she said that Karloff seemed to sense how unhappy she was and how uncomfortable she was, and that you know, he, they became very good friends, and joked with her, and laughed with her, and entertained her every day. She got to the point she really looked forward to coming to work every day, so she could she could have fun with Boris. She said she worked with many, many stars during her career, you know, John Wayne and Errol Flynn and Laurel and Hardy, but she never respected anyone as much as a gentleman or as an actor as she did Boris Karloff. And she said she also very, very much enjoyed working with Lugosi. She said he was a delight, he was considerate, wonderful to work with. She didn't get to know him quite as well as she did Karloff, but she thought Lugosi was terrific as well. Brings us to the beautiful Lucille Lund, looking like Rapunzel there. And um, Lucille Lund, again, it was a great pleasure to, to meet and to interview, and she had some, some very uh, unhappy memories of the Black Cat, which uh, we'll get into at another time. Uh, but um, she also had a great time with Boris Karloff. Uh, she said that in the scene in which they were uh, in the, what she called the glamour boudoir. Next picture, please. There they are. Um, so that Edgar Ulmer made her wear underneath the sheet this very thin, like fishnet, one-piece bathing suit. Very exotic, erotic costume. And uh, she was very, very self-conscious in it. And she said that Karloff knew how self-conscious she was. And again, he was very funny. He made her laugh. He would sing her funny cockney ditties and this sort of thing. And uh, uh, that he, he was just, uh, she said, he just was you know, altogether darling to her. Uh, Lucille was very funny. She used to say that uh, the reason that any film fans ever remembered her at all was because she got in bed with Boris Karloff. <laughs> and uh, there she was. <laughs> now, we'll leave that picture up for a moment because it's such a neat picture. While I do my little commercial here, uh, if you really like The Black Cat, there will be a book coming out about it at Halloween, a magic image book. It'll have the entire shooting script in it, the original shooting script. It'll have um, uh, a copy of the original press book in it my production history in it, going into all the unsavory details I won't go into today. Um, and that'll be out by Halloween, and so if you check my website, or check Magic Images' website, you can find more about that book that will be out shortly. Also, 
we, I have another book doing the commercial here, The Very Witching Time of Night, which we have almost literally hot off the press. Um, these were waiting for us here when we got to the hotel today. And um, again, it's my latest book. It has 13 chapters about all kinds of things related to classic horror. It was a blast to research, a lot of fun. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. So if you stop and see Barb and me at our table throughout this weekend, we'll be there selling copies and signing copies and so on and so forth. So please drop by and uh, take a look. Okay? Commercial over. All right. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about, about the movie, for example, the Black Cat Contest, the Black Cat Parade that we see here. Uh, amazingly enough, some years ago, I received a letter from this little girl that's there with Karloff, uh, who had won the contest. And uh, uh, she had, uh, somebody had shown her this picture in a magazine, and, and uh, she was, you know, just couldn't believe seeing it after all these years. And uh, I talked to her, and I talked to her mother, and her mother talked all about, you know, going to the contest and how exciting it was and how nice Karloff and Lugosi were. And, and also, she, she confided, she said, I'll, I'll tell you how about how, how, how Bernice, how Bernice won. Uh, when she wasn't parading around with her cat, she did acrobatics. And she walked on her hands and did tricks and things like that. And she tried so hard that, you know, Karloff and Lugosi felt they had to give her the prize. So she kind of campaigned for it. There's the whole story about that, and geez, the winning cat, and uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, next picture. There's, of course, the whole very complex Lugosi and Karloff relationship, which, again, uh, we won't get into too much of today, other than to comment that um, they really should have been friends. Uh, it, it's kind of unusual to think Karloff in later years having outlived Lugosi would say, no, we weren't really friends because... We had so many different tastes and so many different interests, but when you think about it, they really had an awful lot in common. They were both exiles from their native country. Uh, they were both very, very interested in actors' rights. They were both Screen Actors Guild uh, founders. Karloff had uh, number nine membership card. It was in number 28. They had plenty to talk about with that. Uh, they both loved acting. They both loved sports. Uh, at this point in their lives, they had both been married four times. They kind of you know, treated war stories about that, I imagine. Uh, they had all kinds of things they could have talked about, but it was uh, an uneasy, an uneasy relationship. Uh, again, a little too uh, dimensional maybe to go into here uh, because of time, but it will be treated in the book. Uh, next picture. Well, suffice to say, the film does get made, and suffice to say, it's, it's filmed in. On this 15-day schedule, I think it actually takes 16 days. Runs runs one day over, and uh, the film gets produced. And sure enough, Junior Lemley takes it and shows it to his father. And the old man says, "We will not release this movie. I'm not. It will not come out. We will not release this movie in this way." Now, in the original film, Lugosi has a somewhat darker personality. Uh, in fact, he tries to uh, attack the heroine at the end. It's changed that he tries to help her. There's all kinds of changes. Um, the original script details, even the skinning alive scene, is a lot different when you read it in the script. Uh, basically, you have this situation where, where uh, Lugosi skins Karloff, and then he runs off to attack Chackle and Wells, and while Karloff wiggles off the rack 
like a bloody pole, and he splats to the floor, and he starts eking his way across the floor with these dead eyes, staring at Lugosi and at Wells, and uh, all this. So there had to be re retakes, uh, and uh, three and a half days of them, uh, before they toned down the film enough for it to be released. During that time, however, next picture please, Ulmer, being Ulmer, decided that if he was putting in all these nice little bits in the movie to try to make it a nicer film, he would also put in a whole new episode which was not so nice. And that was the scene where Karloff prowls through the cellars and looks at all the ladies' corpses preserved in those snow-white vertical crystal caskets. Sort of a necrophilia fantasy that Ulmer presents in the film. All right, added in there. And he figures, you know, Lemley Sr. won't understand this. And so it turned out Lemley Sr. didn't. And they were able to keep it in the movie. Uh, fortunately, because it's a, it's a marvelous scene. So he walks through there stroking his cat, looking at all these young ladies who, by the way, each made $12.50 for hanging in those caskets. Next picture, please. Well, the film opens, as we said, on May 3rd, 1934, at the Pantages Theater. There is yours truly standing on the roof of the Pantages Theater. Don't ask. Um, and um, as we said, Karloff goes to see it, Lugosi's there, Jacqueline Wells is there, Edgar Ulmer is not there. Edgar Ulmer is not there because during the making of the film, he has fallen in love with the assistant script girl and they have begun a relationship. The problem with this is that she's already married. Not only is she already married, she's already married to Uncle Carl's nephew. Uncle Carl finds out about it. Not only has Edgar Ulmer made this abomination of a film, in his opinion, all right, but he's actually ruined his favorite nephew's marriage, and so he throws Edgar Ulmer off the lot, almost physically. And Ulmer, according to the family, wasn't there at the night of the premiere. Like, there were probably orders out front that he showed up to, you know, chasing down Hollywood Boulevard and get rid of him. Uh, so he isn't there to see it. But, nevertheless, the press is there to see it. And sure enough, the next morning, the Hollywood Reporter makes its famous statement, Carlo and Lugosi make improper faces at each other. We said we're not going to talk too much about the, um, Carlton-Legosi relationship, but I will kind of conclude with two, just two stories, uh, kind of wrap this up. One is this. As far as the Legosi-Carlton relationship goes, um, I, I know an actress in England whose name is Tatiana Ward, and uh, uh, she has a very interesting background because her ancestors, her great uncles, came from Hungary and they were emigres along with Legosi. They knew Legosi, they idolized him, they called him Big Brother. And she grew up hearing what a wonderful man Beto Lugosi was. She had, he had died by the time she was born, but she heard, you know, he was spoken of in these heroic terms throughout their family. At the same time, she lived in uh, Cadogan Square in London. She lived very close to Boris Karloff. He was her neighbor. So when she was a little girl, she said at one point, one of her relatives gave her a picture of Mr. Lugosi, as they referred to him. And it was a picture from Dracula. And she looked at this picture of him as Dracula, and she said it really scared her. She looked at it, and she couldn't uh, equate all these wonderful stories she had heard about Mr. Lugosi being such a fine, wonderful, generous 
delightful man with this really frightening Dracula figure who was looking at her from the picture. At the time, she was only like eight years old. So her mother wasn't home, her father wasn't home at the time, and she kept sitting there staring at this picture and didn't know what to make of it. And it was really giving her the creeps and really bothering her. So she decided she would take it over and show it to Mr. Karloff. So she takes this picture of Dracula across the square, goes over it, knocks on Mr. Karloff's door, and she goes in, and he said at this point, because he was, he was quite elderly, and she said he sat there with his, with his wonderful voice and his beautiful wise eyes, as she put it, and uh, she sat down and she said, you know, this is a picture of Mr. Lugosi, and, and uh, my relatives all say what a, what a wonderful man he was, but in this picture he's really scary and it's really bothering me to see him like this. And, and Karloff sat with her and he said, um, now, now, Tatiana, the first thing you need to know is this. Mr. Lugosi dearly loved children. He dearly loved children. He was a wonderful man. He was very quiet. He was very kind. He never spoke a crossword. He went on and on about, about how much uh, he liked Beto Lugosi and how what a wonderful man Lugosi was. And uh, Tatiana said she, she sat there and you know, the tears came to her eyes and she finally said to him, she said, Mr. Lugosi's in heaven. <laughs> and Carlos said, yes, love, that's right. That's right. So she said he really reassured her that day uh, that, so she could make peace with that picture of Lugosi as Dracula. And the final story is this. And that is, I mentioned about um, Julie Bishop, uh, Jacqueline Wells, her name, the professional name late, later was Julie Bishop. And uh, the fact that uh, uh, when I interviewed her, uh, she said, you know, I'm a black cat now named Tiffany. And um, uh, since you're so interested in this film, I think what I might do is I might get my picture taken with my black cat Tiffany and send it to you. And I said, well, that's great. We'll get you throughout the interview about what a, you know, what a racy movie the black cat was and you know, some of the crazy things she had to do and what a kinky film it is. So I said, well, make sure when you, know, you dress up for the picture, you dress up appropriately, you know, to, to pose with your black hat. But sure enough, a couple weeks later in the mail, here comes this picture. There's 82-year-old Julie Bishop wearing a black negligee and posing with her black cat, Tiffany. And if Karloff and Lugosi were here today and saw that picture, I think they'd make improper faces when they saw it. Recording actually comes to us courtesy of Scott and Tracy Morris. They also attended Monster Bash last June. And I'd like to say thank you to Scott and Tracy for recording this for us. I actually wasn't in the room for part of the presentation. I was out doing other Monster Bash-like things. So big thanks to Scott and Tracy for making that happen. And big thanks to the people who made it possible for us to go to Monster Bash. Now, we want to continue to bring you Monster Bash coverage here on Monster Kid Radio. And if you're interested in helping us bring you future Monster Bash coverage, the way to do that, the best way to do that, is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash monsterkidradio and make a monthly pledge supporting us here at the podcast. Big thanks to everybody who's supported us so far. I'm going to start giving out and awarding those bonuses to people who have pledged starting next month, which means there's still time for you to get in on the first month's worth of rewards if you become a patron over at patreon.com. Follow the link in the show notes to find our Patreon page. Also, follow the link in the show notes to find our contact information. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. 
Now, I've gotten some feedback from a listener, and I'm going to use that in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio, because on Thursday, episode 126, is the Monster Kid editorial, where I'm going to tell you what I really think about Universal's plans to relaunch and rebrand their Universal Monsters franchise as a new cohesive unit, going Marvel movie style with it. Somebody's already called in and let me know what they thought. If you want to get in on that Monster Kid editorial episode, let me know what you think about this uniting of the Universal Monsters. Well, drop me a line and I'll put you in the mix. Between now and then, again, big thanks to Scott and Tracy and big thanks to Gregory William Mank for letting us record and share his presentation with everybody out there listening to Monster Kid Radio. And thanks to King Pelican for letting us play their song, Morocco. We're going to go out on that. Remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Again, the song Morocco is available on the album The Good, The Bad, and The Reverb. It belongs to King Pelican. Look him up on Facebook and let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to you in a couple of days. (laughs) 